Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. Now, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, live from Husky Stadium in Seattle, site of number 24 Oregon State at Washington, here's John Canzano with a ball-faced truth. Well, I'm at Husky Stadium. I'm here. The band is on the field. I've said that numerous times. It's still on the field. I had no idea that the bands practiced this much. The Washington marching band is on the field. They're in uh, raincoats. They are dealing with some wind and some weather down there. I don't see rain yet, but the winds are definitely swirling at Husky Stadium. It'll be interesting to see how much of a factor they are in tonight's game as Oregon State will be playing Washington, kicking off on 730 7.30 kickoff, big football game for both programs. There's a huge division right now between the uh, Oregon State-Washington grouping in the uh, Pac-12, you know, standings, and uh, and the rest of the teams that are at the top of the conference, Oregon, USC, UCLA, Utah. There's a division there right now. And so this is the kind of game that if Oregon State wants to stay in that upper echelon of the conference, they've got to win, right? They just get ranked. We all, we have all seen that happen before. Uh, you know, Oregon State just gets back to ranked, and, and what happened? Like I had a bunch of, you know, the uh, negative Nellies out there say, oh, they just got ranked. Watch what happens. Um, so uh, I think, you know, let's see what happens as Oregon State – uh, has the opportunity here in this game to stay with the Habs, so to speak, at the top of the conference. And this is kind of a fork in the road, I think, for Jonathan Smith and his program. If they're going to rattle around, if they're going to matter down the stretch in games against Oregon, especially their bowl game, uh, if they're going to make a run at 10 wins, they got to get this one. And, and that's you know that's a fact. Like I, I'm looking at this stretch here that includes Washington – Cal and Arizona State, and a lot of people have said, "Hey, they got to win two out of three. I I actually think winning this game, this is the this is the highest degree of difficulty for Oregon State. If they can win this game uh, in Seattle tonight, I I think there's a uh, fair chance that they arrive at the end of the season on November 26th uh, at Research Stadium against Oregon. I think there's a really good chance that they sit there at nine and two. Uh, coming up, our next guest, uh, Jeff Perlman. You've read him, New York Times bestselling author. He's written all kinds of amazing books. And a guy that I really respect, a guy that I love to read, uh, is written about a subject that I'm really interested in reading. You know Bo Jackson. And, and people in the state of Oregon will know, across this network, will know you know the Bo Knows campaign with Nike. Like, that was a big deal nationally, globally. Uh, the last folk hero, the life and myth of Bo Jackson is out. Jeff Perlman is the author, and he's joining us now to talk about the book. Jeff, hey, I appreciate you making time for us. Thank you uh, for, for uh, making time for this interview. What made you want to write about Bo? Well, first of all, the most important thing is 
you had me call in at the wrong time, which is totally <laughs> fine because I negotiated yes. a T-shirt and a mug in return for calling an half hour later. Right. So this is win-win. This is total win-win. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no big deal at all. Sorry, man. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm very nostalgic. I'm 50 years old. I'm super nostalgic. I'm really into sort of looking back, which sometimes is good, sometimes bad. And when I think about sports and who I want to write about, Honest to God, I think a lot about, like, my boyhood room in Mayo Pack, New York, and the posters on the wall. And there's Ricky Henderson, there's Michael Jordan, there's Don Mattingly, there's Ken Griffey Sr. And, you know, the biggest one was probably Bo Jackson. And I just, I always loved him as a kid. I always thought what he was doing, the two-sport thing, was just amazing and mind-blowing. And then he vanished. He just vanished. And in a lot of ways, writing this book was like writing, it could have been a Tupac biography or a JFK biography. It was like writing about someone who, who died young, except his death was only in sports, not in life. But I just thought it was a really good topic. And very I, I, I'm the same way, because I remember, you know, that, that baseball card that Score put out that Bo had the bat on his shoulder in black and white. Yeah. It was, pr you know, printed horizontally. And I remember seeing him throw from the outfield, run on the football field. Like, he could do it all. Um you know, what else did you learn about Bo? Like, you know, the plane, the that plane incident where did he get up in the cockpit? Is that true that he helped try to so, help the pilots or what? Well, I kind of used it early on in the book because I thought it really exemplified who he is. Um, he was with the White Sox at the time. It was 91. They were flying back from Anaheim after a game against the Angels. And um, midway through the flight, the uh, one side of the plane is engulfed in flames and the engine caught on fire. And, you know, the players are freaking out. People are screaming. People are cocooning themselves in pillows, whatever you do when you plane you think is going down. And all of a sudden, the cockpit door opens, and out walks Bo Jackson. And he says, uh, everyone calm down. Everyone calm down. Why was he in the cockpit? You know, nobody knows. Everyone calm down. It's going to be okay. Pilots have it under control. And I have this whole story from multiple White Sox about Bo Jackson coming out of the cockpit. But then I get another story that he wasn't in the cockpit. The plane is on fire. Everyone's freaking out. And Bo Jackson gets out of his seat and runs up to the cockpit to help the pilots land the plane. And both stories, I, I wrote in the book, you know, only because it's Bo Jackson, maybe both are true. And <laughs> the, the funny thing is, this is they wound up landing, making an emergency landing in Des Moines, Iowa. And um, they get off the plane. It's 3.30 in the morning. Everyone is freaked out. They all thought they were going to die. And there's a, uh, the, the airport is empty and there's a kiosk with a keg uh, attached to a, to a uh, lock. And Bo Jackson, this is according to many, many people, picks up the keg, breaks off the lock with his fist, and starts handing out pouring beer for everyone. And I always say the great mythology of Bo Jackson is where did he get the cups from? <laughs> I love that. Jeff Perlman is our guest. Uh, the book's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. So many good stories with him. And... You know, you bring up uh, the comparisons. I, I want to say, like, you know, Jim Thorpe. Uh, but mm -hmm. you know what happens is nobody gets – I don't hear it today. I don't hear somebody talking about a college player or NFL player, Major League Baseball player going, you know who he reminds me of? Bo Jackson. You don't hear that. No. I would say the people nowadays – the closest we have in a lot of ways uh, to Bo Jackson is Shohei Otani. Yeah. Uh, just in the fact of, like, oh, my God, how is he doing that? And, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. But the big difference is we were seeing videos of Otani, uh, you know, on Twitter and on Instagram and TikTok before he even came to America. And, you know, Bo Jackson, 
Well, we're in a four one three forty at Auburn, which is utterly preposterous, especially at two hundred and twenty five pounds. But there's no video of it. You know, he ran a four one seven forty on grass in pads with the Raiders, but there's no video of it. He did so many things where there was no video that it's just eyewitnesses that it really has a full cure of Paul Bunyan type feel to it, which makes it really kind of fun actually. Jeff, as you're as you're writing this book, you know, I, I'm curious about how Bo's teammates viewed him. Did he have good relationships with all of his teammates? How was he viewed in a NFL locker room, Major League Baseball locker room? You know, did you get a different uh, viewpoint from two sports, or did, did did everybody sort of think, hey, this is the authentic Bo, and it's one and the same? Um, he was prickly. He was very prickly. He was not warm and fuzzy. Never has been. Um, I'd heard early on that he beat the crap out of Kevin Seitzer, the Royals' third baseman, and I was kind of intrigued by that. And it turns out he did beat the crap out of Kevin Seitzer, the Royals' third baseman. Um, he was, it was during a dispute during batting practice under the stadium in Kansas City. Seitzer was kind of annoying. He's now a coach of the Braves, good guy, but at the time kind of a, a gnat, you know, just annoying, always buzzing around. And one day he's giving Bo grief uh, while they're taking DP, and Bo basically says, you need to stop. And Seitzer doesn't read the signals, and he's like, no, nah, I'm going to, you, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Bo Jackson grabs, takes his hand, grabs him by the neck, lifts Kevin Seitzer off the ground. Kevin Seitzer starts turning blue. Teammates come rushing over, trying to rip Bo Jackson off of him, grab his arm. He finally lets go. Seitzer falls to the ground. And, uh, at, at, you know, everything passes. And maybe an hour later, Seitzer comes up to Bo, and he's like, hey, man, I hope we're good. And Bo Jackson's like, we're not good. You do not mess with me ever again. And it was like, okay, I won't let mess with you. He was, he was a quiet guy. He, he didn't like signing autographs for teammates. If he was playing football, he would never sign a baseball autograph. Like, you couldn't be on the Raiders and bring him a Royals jersey. You couldn't bring on the, be on the Royals and bring him a Raiders jersey. Uh, very sensitive, but, you know, always performed. So, ultimately, that's kind of what you want most of all. You talked about the disappearance of Bo, and I remember him trying to do a little television that didn't go well. Why do you think he did disappear? Was that by choice, or was he just, when he wasn't playing, was it not the same? Well, you might be referring to the cartoon Pro Stars, which yeah. was Bo Jackson, Michael Jordan, and Wayne Gretzky as cartoon superstars who fought bad guys. And Bo Jackson didn't even do his own voice. None of those yeah. guys did, so it's kind of funny. He, um, You know, he never really craved celebrity. Never. Kansas City was probably the best market for him, mid-major. Uh, he never wanted to be the guy signing autographs. He hated being approached during meals. Um, when he retired, he tried acting a little bit, but didn't really didn't really love it. Um, he's a guy really happy uh, being in the woods hunting, being with his grandkid, shoveling his driveway, shooting bows, you know, shooting arrows in the backyard in his little setup. He just never had it. You know, people are like, people always, we always tend to do in sports, us in the media, will often be like, it's such a shame that he didn't get more blank, or it's such a shame that he's not in the Hall of Fame. He doesn't give a crap. He doesn't care. Just is not in his DNA. How did he feel about you writing the book? That's a hell of a question. So I talked to him very early on. I sent him a couple of my other books in a note, and he, uh, he called me one day. He called me in 2020, and he's like, hey, this is Bo Jackson. I was like, hey, and he... Uh, he was driving to get his wife a chopped salad, and he said, I got your letter. I don't have a problem with you writing the book. We had a really nice conversation. He's like, I don't have a problem with you writing it. He goes, I get approached all the time. It's not something that really interests me, but I don't have a problem with you doing it. So 
Um, I went about it without him. You know, I didn't interview him. I, I would update him every now and then in the mail. I'd send him stuff that I found. And I got really lucky because um, he had an autobiography come out in 1990 called Bo Knows Bo. That was written by Dick Shap. Hmm. And before Dick Shap passed away, he donated all his notes and all his audio tapes to the uh, Auburn Library. Hmm. So there's just hours and hours and hours and hours of never listened to interviews between Bo Jackson and Dick Shap. Um, and it's been sitting there for 30 years, you know, gathering dust. So I had a ton of new, never-before-heard Bo material that kind of made up for his lack of involvement. I love that. And I, I, I think, you know, look, it's a it's being touted as a really honest look at Bo, the life and myth of Bo Jackson, the last folk hero. I don't think we're going to get another Bo with the specialization that, that has kind of gone on in this era. Like, do you think in this era we could have another Bo Jackson? Or if Bo came along in this era, would he have just been too talented for to not be able to do what he still did? Well, here's what I can tell you as a guy from – I'm in New York right now, but I'm from – I live in uh, – Southern California, yeah. and I have two kids. And if any of my kids had any athletic talent, which they don't because they're sports writers' kids, they would, you know, like if you're eight years old, and you, you know it's true, if you're eight years old, and some coach sees you throw a fastball, you know that can't be hit. Well, all of a sudden, oh man, you we have we have to get you working with so and so coach who used to pitch AAA with the so and so, and and then we need to get you on this and. and the kid may say, but I really want to play basketball. And they're going to be like, don't you understand? Those other two kids, they're already getting coached, and they already know how to throw sliders. And we've ruined, absolutely ruined, across America, the joy of being a kid and playing a bunch of sports and playing football in your backyard and playing pickup hoop. Seriously, it drives me crazy, this era of specialization. And you take a guy like Bo Jackson, or even like I wrote a biography of Brett Favre and Walter Payton, you take those guys, and you put those kids in the modern world, and they're told from seven years old, you need to play this sport only. And I, it sucks. So I don't think, no, I don't think there'd be a Bo Jackson nowadays. You know, it's funny, is and I bring on athletes that are pro athletes, and, and they, they, to a person, will preach, uh, you know, do play as many sports as possible. Play everything. You don't need to specialize. But, but parents do not listen. Parents don't get nope. that message, and we and look. The reality is, and you know it because you're a sports writer, and I know it. I've been you know covering sports. It's it's that the vast majority of these kids are never going to play a sport at a level that would even matter that they specialized. Man, listen. If any parent is listening right now, I really mean this. This is why I keep them. My kids are now. My kids a high school junior and a college sophomore. Your kids will grow up so fast. It's a blink, and to ruin their childhoods because you have it, you're dead set on them getting a scholarship or becoming a professional, blah, blah, blah. It's almost child abuse. It's so disturbing. Let your kids be kids. Let them play multiple sports. Let them have fun. It's it just, just to treat your kids like their investments, future investments, it hurts my head as a sports writer. Most, you're right. Most athletes I know who I'm friends with feel the exact same way. Jeff Perlman is our guest. The last full hero, the life and myth of Bo Jackson. I encourage you to grab it. Get it at your local bookstore. Get it at Powell's Books. Get it at Barnes & Noble. Order it, on, order it on Amazon. Jeff, before I let you go, uh, I get the impression, like sometimes when you dive into a book, you probably maybe leave the subject matter thinking, well, this is a complicated person. I'm not sure if I like this person as much as I did before I started the project. I get the impression you like Bo Jackson more after learning more about him. I do. Um, I do a lot. I uh 
the thing is, you ask yourself, when you see someone's prickly, sometimes you say, well, what, what made him prickly? And then you look at Bo, and he was one of 11 kids born into abject poverty in, in Alabama. Um, he was going to school in his sister's hand-me-down shoes, or if those weren't available, socks. He grew up sleeping on the floor of a three-room house, rolling up against the heater, waking up with burn marks on his body, uh, severe stutter, held back a year. So I look at him, and I look at what he's become, and I look at what he civilizes, and I'm blown away. And I just, I'm, I'm, his perseverance is second to none. And he's, he's a role model times a thousand. You, you send him the book. I'm sure he's taking a look at it. What feedback did he give you? I haven't gotten any yet, unfortunately. I have not gotten any, so I don't know. Nah. It bums me out. I always like knowing one way or another, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think one day he'll call you when he's going to get a chopped salad, and he'll be like, Perlman, that was not bad. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. All right. Hey, thank you for making time. I'm sorry that I had you call too early, but thank you for delivering. I'm encouraging people to pick this book up. I'm going to buy it. I think uh, I'm going to give it to my dad because I think he'd really get a kick out of reading it. So, Jeff, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for joining us. Just buy me a chopped salad next time I'm in, I'm in Oregon. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll call it even. You got it. We're even. Jeff Perlman, there he is, best-selling author, New York Times. The book, if you want it, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. I don't know about you, Stephen. I don't know about you, Judah. But, uh, you know, I, I want to read this book. And you can tell how excited Jeff Perlman was about writing it. Yeah, I mean, he's such a, such a legend in a way where it's like, you know what? How, you know, you guys talked about like specialization. Had he focused on just one sport, oh. how could could he have been? Right? Hall but of he Famer. Was, yeah, Hall but, of Famer. But he was so good yeah. at everything. Like, he was an awesome player, and there'll never be someone like him. Like, I remember playing with him in uh, Tecmo Super Bowl. The Nintendo game. Yeah. Like, unstoppable in that game. Like, that's <laughs> my first thought. But then I also played RBI Baseball, and he was awesome in that game. Like, it, it, it's amazing how good he is as an athlete. Yeah, I know you're in Seattle, John. So the, the Bo Jackson Kingdom Monday Night Football run yes. is what I always remember. And you need a larger-than-life figure to to almost justify a biography like this. That's exactly what Bo is and, and was. So I'll look forward to reading the book. Paul Bunyan-like as a as an athlete. Uh, I am at Husky Stadium where the wind is blowing. Is it gusting? Yeah, I think it's inconsistently gusting. I do think it'll be a factor tonight in this football game. We'll drill down on our picks in the Pac-12, plus we'll play some punch it audio. I want you to leave it here. The Beavs are ranked. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano, live from Husky Stadium on 750 The Game. I'm live today from Husky Stadium, just like the big voice guy says. Oregon State will be playing Washington 730 kickoff. You'll watch it on television. I'm here to talk about it and the rest of the Pac-12 conference. I am looking out over Lake Union. I'm looking out over the uh, stadium here at Husky Stadium. I am uh, uh, eager to see some football played here. I'll tell you when the teams get on the field, nothing on the field yet. I've been in a lot of stadiums before they open, but I'll tell you, I drove in last night, and I was on I-5, and I was on the bridge right by the University of Washington campus, and the University of Washington Medical Center, and I was exiting uh, onto what is 45th Street that is uh, you know, not far, just a mile away from the stadium, and I could see the purple glow of the stadium at night, and it was really cool. It was like, you know, I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com, and I, I kind of described it as a nightlight in the hallway 
because there's darkness behind it with the water and everything behind the stadium and it just that blue that purple hue that comes up out of the stadium as they light it and and I think the landmarks in Seattle I people talk about the Space Needle but the landmarks as you drive into downtown Seattle or drive towards downtown Seattle when you're coming on I-5 from from the state of Oregon the landmarks are are you know it's you see the airport, of course, and then you see the Space Needle, of course, and but you see T-Mobile Park, and you see what is Lumen Field, and the home of the Seahawks, and the home of the Mariners, and you know I went to the top of the uh, Space Needle today. I got an angry phone call from uh, the UCLA athletic director, who was mad at me for the column I wrote this morning. But um, you know my point being, uh, for if you read it, you know that I wrote about a soccer player at UCLA who I encountered uh, at my hotel. The UCLA soccer team was staying at the same hotel. They played Washington last night. And so I started talking to some of the soccer players, and I told them, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I write a column at johnconzano.com. I'm really interested in this move to the Big Ten that they're making. And one of the soccer players, a senior, uh, told me he's not happy about it. They just played at Rutgers last Saturday. They just It was a six-hour plane ride, they said, out and six hours back. And he said, the comment he made, he said, it's just too much. He said, it's too much, if you ask me. He said, it's too far of a trip. He said, we're students. It's You're asking too much. And I know that UCLA is making this move or wants to make this move to the Big Ten because there's a financial incentive to do so. Turns out that the media rights deal that they've talked about has been severely exaggerated. The actual numbers... I'm told that the UC Regents are looking at it's not 72 million it's not 80 million dollars a year in distributions it's 62.5 so that's the number the Pac-12 is trying to get as close to 62.5 as it can get with its media rights number and maybe part of that is they're gonna have Amazon involved but everybody expects that number to be around 30 so if it's 62.5 and 30 I understand why UCLA is interested in talking or leaving to the Big Ten like everybody gets that that's not in question like the money we understand but I just feel bad for some of the athletes in the non-revenue generating sports like soccer uh, who are going to have to make those trips if they move to the Big Ten it almost feels to me like Mark Few had the answer when he talked about the potential for uh, sports to break off and maybe maybe there's a basketball division of college athletics that has like 60 teams in it maybe there's a football division that has like 60 or 70 teams in it they all sort of play in the same division and then maybe baseball does the same thing like you know he talked about sports specific you know why does Gonzaga have to play in the WCC shouldn't it be with the other best basketball teams in America um, I feel like the non-revenue generating sports are getting a raw deal here because they are going to have to go out and play Maryland and Rutgers and travel. And I could see it. I could tell you, I was in the hotel lobby at 7.15 this morning. And there's a little restaurant in the lobby. And I was sitting in there, and the UCLA players came in. And they were dragging. And they're facing a van ride from Seattle to Corvallis today. That's where they're traveling. They're not getting on a plane. They're taking a van from Seattle to Corvallis. Then they're going to play a game on Sunday in Corvallis. Now, that's a grind as it is. But I can tell you, uh, they were moving slow. They were, you know, it was an early call. They, had a 10, they were done at 10.30 last night. They lost the game 3-2. to two. 
And, you know, the senior that I talked about, he said, this is not going to affect me. He said, I'm going to be gone. But he goes, if you ask me, he goes, we're students. He goes, it's too much. So uh, the UCLA athletic director called me. He was upset. He said, you know, you could have quoted another player who was happy that we were making the move. And I told him, I said, if there were a player there who was willing to talk to me about how happy he is about going to the Big Ten, I'm thrilled to talk to him. I said, can you give me, can you give me one of those players? And he said, no, we're not going to do that. And I said, well, then what do you, why are you calling me? Like, you know, let's, if you're calling me to complain that the piece that I wrote wasn't balanced, give me somebody who will help balance it. I said, give me an administrator. Give me an alumni. Give me, give me somebody who can speak to that side of it. And he said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Well, this is what we're left with. And I think every voice matters. If it, you know, you have 600 athletes inside the athletic, typical athletic department. I think every one of those athletes gets a vote, okay? And UCLA did a study. They say that the majority of athletes voted that this was a good move. I asked the AD today, I said, can I get the study? Can you give, can you give me the data? Can you give me the answers? He said no. So, I, you know, I don't know what to believe on that front, but I do know that one soccer player on that UCLA men's soccer team who was willing to put his name to his words told me it's too much. You're, they're asking too much. We're students. And I think that voice matters in this conversation. I almost feel like, you know, football wants to go play football games in the Big Ten. Let them go. But th is that fair to everything else on the UCLA campus, every other sport, every other athlete? I mean, you know, maybe they'll start recruiting the Midwest, and those kids will be happy that they get to play at Northwestern and Illinois and Maryland and Rutgers and, you know, Michigan and everywhere else. But until then, I, I got a feeling that the non-revenue generating sports are not going to be very happy. Coming up, we'll play some Punch It audio. We'll talk about the Pac-12 games. If you want to read that column I just referenced, go to John. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Baldface. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Baldface Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Baldface Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.